Good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you would, open up your Bibles to Matthew, the 26th chapter. Matthew, the 26th chapter. I'm going to uh, read uh, several verses from there in just a moment. And really, that passage is going to be at the heart of everything that we'll talk about today. I'll, I'll cite some other verses, have some of the verses on the screen as we work along. But we'll mainly just be thinking about the things that are recorded right here in Matthew, chapter 26. If you're getting your Bibles ready and getting uh, comfortable for this part of our worship, let me say how good it is to see everybody this morning, what a joy it is to get to be with you today, uh, and to get the opportunity to stand before you today and to present some things from the scriptures that I hope will be helpful for, uh, for all of us in trying to think about what to preach uh, on today. Um, I will tell you that the things that I'm going to talk about today really were born out of some, some sorrowful uh, events. We had a young family back in Tennessee who... Uh, we got word on a Saturday morning uh, that they had lost their, their baby that they had brought almost to, to full term. It was just a few weeks before the time of the delivery. And uh, we were in Ohio uh, heading back from a gospel meeting. And so we had a six-hour drive back to Tennessee, and that was on my mind the whole ride home. And I had already planned what I was going to preach on that following Sunday, and I just couldn't shake what was going on in our spiritual family and what was going on with the sorrow that we felt. And so I stayed up and burnt the midnight oil and wrote a whole new sermon that night. And I want to share those things with you because I know they were helpful for me. Maybe you'll find them helpful as well. Let's read together in Matthew, the 26th chapter. This, uh, if you're here for the Bible class here in the auditorium this morning, this will maybe sound a little bit like deja vu. This is Matthew's account of what we studied in Mark. Let's read about Jesus in the garden. In Matthew, chapter 26, I want to just read the first three verses of this passage, verses 36 through 38. It says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Whenever tragedy, heartache, suffering, whenever that befalls other people, how do you react to that? How do you deal with that? What is your response to that? Are you the type that gives that a, a few moments of attention and you think about it for a few moments and you maybe even say to yourself, that's, that's very sad, I, I, I hate to hear that, I feel sorry for them. And then after a few moments pondering on that, you very quickly divert your attention elsewhere so that you can be occupied doing something else because, because to dwell on that any longer, to keep thinking about that, that's just, it's just too depressing, it's just too heartbreaking. I, I just can't think about that. Or maybe are you the type, whenever tragedy befalls other people, maybe you're the type that just kind of jumps right past the sorrow and you want to get to kind of the pragmatic side of things. I'm thinking, for example, about all of the, the war and the violence and the bloodshed that's been going on in, in Israel and Gaza and the Middle East for the last couple of months. Are you the type that maybe looks at all of that and kind of jumps to the practical side of things that says, man, let's, let, let's figure out how to avoid that happening again. Let's, let's think about some strategies that would keep something like that from ever occurring again. How could things be, be done differently? How could it be resolved? Are, are you the type of person that just bypasses the sorrow altogether? I think if most of us are being honest, most of us would probably say that we really would like it if life came with, 
with a remote control. That whenever tragedy occurs in our world, or whenever tragedy befalls other people, or most especially whenever tragedy and suffering occurs in our own lives, what we'd like is we'd like to be able to push the fast-forward button on that remote control and just get past all of that sad stuff. Let's just get past all the difficulties, all the hurt, and all the pain, and let's get back to when things are, are good again. Just think about it. How many of us were eager to press the fast-forward button nearly four years ago when COVID-19 became a reality in our world? Hey, let's, let's just get this over with. Just hurry up be done with this so that we can get back to when things were normal and good. How many of you that maybe have little ones? I, I can't tell you how many times Tiffany and I, over the last couple of years now, we've said to one another, I can't wait for Gertie to get past this phase that she's in right now. The terrible twos, and unfortunately it's still in the threes. We'd, we'd like to hit the fast-forward button and get past all of this and get to a better stage in her, in her upbringing and in her growing up. If, if life had one of those remote controls, we could maybe hit pause on all the good moments, maybe even rewind a little bit and relive some of those nicer moments. But we'd especially like to be able to fast-forward past all the painful stuff. And the reason that that is, I think, our natural inclination is because most of us just don't do well with grief. We oftentimes don't know what to say to people who are grieving, and we don't even know what we're supposed to do whenever we're the ones who are grieving. We're just generally confused by the whole, the whole grief process, and we just really don't want it to last very long. That's really the only thing we know about grief, is that we don't want it to last very long at all. And I got to thinking, I wonder if some of our uneasiness about, about grief and sorrow, I wonder if some of that is rooted in the fact that we don't have a true appreciation for the story of redemption itself. You stop and think about it. In our world right now, there is an entire season that has been set aside to commemorate and to celebrate and to remember the birth of Jesus into this world. Furthermore, when it gets to the early part of spring, there is a day that is set aside on the calendar where people are going to stop and they're going to remember and they're going to celebrate and they're going to memorialize the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And can I just say about those things? Praise God for the birth of Jesus. Praise God for the resurrection of Jesus. But I do find it curious that people are, are very, very comfortable with those glorious moments when the Lord was born, those wonderful moments when the Lord rose from the dead, yet it is interesting to me that there's not a single, at least to my knowledge, not a single special day or observance for people to commemorate what we just read right here in Matthew chapter 26. I'm not aware of any person, even individually, who pauses and takes time out of their life and lingers long right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. How many people stop and value and treasure what we see here, the grief and the sorrow and the agony that Jesus experienced before ultimately going to the cross? That is, I fear, one of those moments that by and large we've just skipped right past. 
And we've done that in our haste to kind of fast forward. We want to get to the glory. We want to get to the joy of the empty tomb where we know all these happy ending is going to be awaiting us. And yet this morning, what I'm going to suggest is that we need to actually take a moment and slow down because we sure do not want to run past Gethsemane. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that we can't run past the grief of Gethsemane because we can't even do that in our own lives either. We can't just jump right ahead to the glory of the final resurrection. Just jump right ahead to the glories of heaven where there's no pain and no sorrow anymore because the fact is there's still suffering, there's still sorrow, and there's still hurt that has to be dealt with right now in the present. Which is why this morning I want us to spend just a few minutes right here with Jesus in the garden. I want us to do exactly what he asked his disciples to do and yet it seems that they failed to do and that is to sit and to watch with him in his grief. And as we do that, I want us to carefully observe Jesus. What exactly is Jesus teaching us and modeling for us here in the garden? Whenever we maybe experience our own Gethsemanes in life, what is Jesus showing us? What can we learn that the disciples should have learned about comforting others in their grief? And how does the grief of the garden help to prepare us for the glory that is to come later? Let's actually just read the account in its entirety. I read the first three verses. Let's just read it all together once again. In Matthew 26, begin in verse 36 again. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again for the second time he went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and he prayed the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This morning what I'd like for us to do for just a few minutes is I want us to just stop and I want us to see the man of sorrows. And, and I want us to do that from the perspective of the disciples. I want us as best we can, let's try to place our feet into their shoes, Peter, James, and John. What would they have seen there in Gethsemane had they been more alert? What would they maybe have come to understand a little bit better uh, considering that, that they really didn't get the cross, they didn't get the tomb despite Jesus' attempts and efforts to teach them and prepare them for all of that. What would we have taken from this scene if we had been with Jesus in the garden? 
Well, first of all, I imagine there probably would have been some confusion on our part. There would have been some real head-scratching, wondering, what's, what's going on with Jesus tonight? Why, why is he so somber this evening? I mean, when we were back in the upper room and we were eating the Passover meal together, he, he made a few statements that we weren't really sure exactly what he meant by that. Maybe the one that really struck us the most was when he talked about how the shepherd was going to be struck and the sheep were all going to be scattered. And I didn't really get all of that. I didn't really understand how that kind of made him have a whole change in disposition from that point forward. I just didn't really understand any of that. And now that we're here in the garden, he's, he's praying. and Well, that's not uncommon for Jesus to be praying, but, but tonight he's praying very, very fervently. What is that? I mean, we've seen him pray before. He's prayed in our presence. He's, he's prayed with us before, but, but we've never heard him pray like this with such, I don't know, desperation maybe is the word that we would use. In fact, it's not that he's just praying the way that maybe we would think of praying. He's actually crying out. The Hebrew writer will later observe that that's what he's doing with loud cries and with tears. He's talking to the Lord. And actually, that's the part that's really unsettling for us because we've only seen him cry one time before. And that was at the tomb of our friend Lazarus. But this time, this time his crying, his tears are very, very different. In fact, he's... He's physically overwhelmed. He's, he's drenched with sweat. So much so that, that his sweat actually looks like, it looks like it's blood. And if we're being honest, at this point, this is really starting to make us feel very, very uncomfortable. I mean, why is this man that we, we revere so much, we, we love so much, we, we consider him to be the Messiah, why is he acting this way? We hate to say it, but, but, but it's almost a little embarrassing for us. Maybe if there's one saving grace in all of this, it's in the fact that, that we're in a very private place. He's in a spot where, where people in the general public, they can't see him. But he does seem alone. He seems really, really alone. After a while, we begin to worry as we watch him. Because what it seems to us is it seems that he's in pain. Physically, he's in pain. At the very least, he's very anxious, maybe even depressed, one might say. In fact, he ends up coming over to us and he tells us that he is so overcome with sadness and with grief, he feels like he might die from this grief. I mean, what do we even say to that? How do we even respond to such a thing? Mark will say that he is greatly distressed and troubled. Luke will even describe it as him being in agony. It's like he's enduring some kind of, of psychological warfare and torture and it's now manifesting itself in this intense physical pain. And how do we feel about that? We feel utterly helpless. None of us are doctors. What in the world do we do for somebody like this? Well, what can we possibly do to help him? He asked us to watch with him. Okay, we're, we're doing that, but, but that doesn't really seem all that helpful. All we can do is just, just kind of feel sorry for him in the moment. And what's even more alarming is we're trying to listen to some of the words that he's saying in his prayer. It almost sounds like he's enduring a crisis of faith. 
He's crying out to God and saying, Father, if you're willing, please stop this from happening. And then even a little bit more attention grabbing is when he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Calling upon the Lord in that most intimate and personal of names. And so now we start wondering, if, if God is able and if God is willing, then why doesn't he? Why doesn't God remove the cup of suffering that he sees his son enduring? We don't know. We're just confused by all of this. Maybe if nothing else at this point, we're at least starting to understand a little bit of what the prophet meant when he said so long ago in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But then we keep listening to his prayer. And he gives that final caveat in his prayer that really seizes our attention. When he says to the Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And the next thing you know, he's back on two feet. And he's walking in our direction. And he's now got this, what seems to be almost a calm resignation about him. And he says to us that the hour is come. My betrayer is at hand. Well, hold on. Betrayer? What, what, what is that about? Our heart is breaking for him because in the midst of all that he's apparently going through in his mind, there was this awareness that he was going to be betrayed by someone who was close to him, someone who was his friend. And yes, that's exactly what's about to happen. Because as the garden is slowly illuminated by torches, we see soldiers coming, and there's a man who's leading the way. And the man in the front looks somewhat familiar to us, but we can't quite make out his face because of all the darkness and the shadows. But eventually, eventually we come to see it's, it's Judas. And right there, right there in front of us, right there in that scene where we're there privy to all of this, there they arrest our master and our teacher. And we end up doing exactly as he said we were going to do just a few hours earlier. We all end up scattering and fleeing. We all end up running away. In fact, the words of the prophet in Isaiah the 53rd chapter start to ring a little bit more true as well. Because in Isaiah 53 and in verse 6, it talks there about the idea that all we like sheep have gone astray. And what we come to realize maybe as we're running away is that not only is that the idea of running away physically but there is a running and turning away spiritually that is taking place. Which maybe then helps us to better understand what's going on in the last part of that verse and helps us have a little bit better understanding of the sorrow that he was feeling in the garden and that is the understanding that the Lord has laid on him our iniquity. It's our sins that he's grieving over in the garden. So what have we witnessed? What have we learned from being with Jesus in the garden? As, as we've got to sit there and be privy to Christ in what is arguably his most vulnerable state, what have we learned from that? Well, three things come to mind. Number one, what we've seen is we've seen that grief longs for companionship. You know, as isolating and as torturous as grief is for the victim... 
And as uncomfortable and as helpless feeling as grief is for the person who is, who's watching, who's on the outside observing the person who is grieving, there is still a need at the end of the day for other people. Think about it. It was Jesus who asked for these close friends to come with him. He didn't ask for all 12. He just asked for three. He said, I want you to come and I want you to be with me and I want you to sit and I want you to watch with me for just a little while. And in many ways, this sums up our responsibility today to those who are suffering and those who are grieving. And that is to be there, to support them, to be with them, to be present, to pray with them, to share in their grief. It's what Paul would write in Romans chapter 12 and in verse 15 when he says to weep with those who weep. It's what Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 26 when he talks about when one member suffer, all suffer together. In fact, it is the very definition of what it means to have compassion. As Paul would write in Colossians about putting on a heart of compassion. That is, we're going to feel with that other person. We are feeling their pain as much as we possibly can. And this is, this is a huge component of what it means to be a part of of the body of Christ. And we got some folks sitting in this room that have not been Christians for very long. I want you to understand, one of your roles, one of your jobs as being a part of the body of Christ is to grieve with others in their grief. To watch for moments where we can help and where we can assist. To sometimes come and literally just sit in silence over someone else's loss. To pray for them, for the comfort of God, for the grace of God, for the mercy of God upon them. To be there and to provide that physical shoulder that they can lean upon in their hour of suffering. Because if we try to pull out that remote control and just fast forward to the ending, and let's just skip past all this hard stuff. Let's just get past all of this, this unpleasant and painful stuff. Hey, let's get to the practical part, yeah, where, where I can then dispense all of my brilliant knowledge. I can then tell them all the wisdom that I've learned through the years about how they can get over this and get back on with their lives. If I try to jump to that without sitting with them in their hour of distress, then I am no better than Peter and James and John who could not for just a few moments on that night watch and pray with the Savior. And when that happens, what happens is, is we end up missing opportunities. We miss opportunities to serve. We miss opportunities to encourage. We miss opportunities to tangibly demonstrate the love of God in a substantive, uh, substantial and meaningful way. In fact, I mentioned earlier about, about COVID-19 back in 2020, and many of us, again, we, we don't even like even thinking back to what a wretched year that was in many ways. But i got to tell you, I wonder, as I think back, I wonder how many opportunities I missed to just sit with people. To sit with people in their sorrow and in their hurt and in their pain. Because I was too busy over here on the other side complaining about how awful all of this is and I just want to hurry up and get back to normal as soon as I possibly can. How selfish. I'm sorry for that. How self-centered. Grief longs for companionship. Secondly, as we watch Jesus in the garden, we are reminded that we have a Savior who is not simply just aware of our hurt, but He shares in it. We have a Savior who does not merely watch us 
in our pain, but he participates in it. Just as he had done earlier at the tomb of Lazarus in John chapter 11, Jesus is heartbroken at our pain and our loss here in this present life. Jesus does not just dismiss that and say, well, you know, hey, they're going to get over it. I mean, everybody gets over stuff. I mean, after all, I'm going to raise them from the dead eventually one day. Why even worry about all this? That's not Jesus' reaction to our hurt. We serve a Lord who is there and weeps with us at the graveside. We serve a Lord whose heart aches when our heart aches. We serve a Lord, as the Hebrew writer will say in Hebrews 4.15, who sympathizes with us in every respect, yet without sin. And I preach that this morning, not simply to remind you of how great and awesome Jesus is, but I believe that that then provides for us greater motivation to just praise Him all the more to love Him all the more, to serve Him all the more. Even in the midst of our own storms of suffering, we can praise Him and serve Him faithfully because He knows and He cares like nobody else can. And Gethsemane shows us that, maybe better than any other place in the New Testament, that we have a sympathetic high priest. Because finally, as we contemplate Jesus' sorrow in the garden, what we come to see is that grief must be tempered by hope. You know, that grief that Jesus experienced in the garden, it was certainly full of, of heartache and of agony. But I want you to understand, it was not filled with hopelessness or with despair. Jesus faced his sorrow with an immense confidence in the will of God. Yes, he agonizes. Yes, he is in pain. But then he says those words at the end that brings it all back together. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And you know, when you hear that, that almost seems like a really silly thing to say when you're hurting. That is until you're the one that's hurting. And in that moment, that's about the only thing that you can say that's going to bring any kind of comfort. Because that's the language of faith. That's the language of trust that I'm going to trust the Lord even in the midst of tragedy. And that is exactly why Jesus was able to regain his composure. And he was able to make that march from Gethsemane to Golgotha, as the Hebrew writer would record in Hebrews 12 and in verse 2, that Jesus was able to look past the pain of the moment because of the joy that he knew that was set before him. He believed that God would raise him from the dead and would bring him home to glory. And it is that hope for us. It is the hope of the resurrection that echoes back into our present pain. That doesn't make pain go away. It doesn't eliminate all grief that we experience in this life. But that hope does enable us to grieve differently than the rest of this world, doesn't it? Paul would write in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 that the world grieves in, in one kind of way. But God's people, we don't grieve that way. We don't grieve as people who have no hope. Instead, we are given and we grieve with the settled assurance that one day we will be brought into a better place, a much better place, where there will be no more suffering, there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more death. As one author said, if our grief is great now, how much greater will our glory be someday? And the author of that quote, I think, maybe kind of stole that from the Apostle Paul when he wrote in Romans 8, 18, 
that I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, they're not even worth being compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. What Matthew 26 shows us, what Mark 14 shows us, what Luke 22 shows us, is that we don't want to run past Gethsemane. We want to stop in that garden. And we want to learn from the man of sorrows about how grief can actually bring people together. How grief can cause us to appreciate our Savior and to love Him even more. And how grief serves as powerful fuel for our journey to heaven. The noted author C.S. Lewis, he's probably most famously known for writing the Chronicles of Narnia books. They've been made into movies, which some of them have. Uh, one of the books is titled The Magician's Nephew. And there's a scene in that book where there's a young man by the name of Diggory. And Diggory's mother is, is suffering. Uh, she's actually dying in the story. And Diggory is trying as best as he can to get out of Narnia so that he can get back home. He wants to take care of his mother and he wants to hopefully nurse her back to health. And there's this scene where Diggory ends up encountering the great lion Aslan which if you've read the books before, then you know that Aslan is supposed to be kind of representative of, of Jesus. He's a, he's a Christ-like figure. And Diggory is just crying out to the great lion. He's, he, he's weeping and he's, and he's sobbing into the, into the mane of the great lion, asking him to, to please, please help. And then C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, up until then... Diggory had been looking at the lion's great front feet with huge claws on them. But now in his despair, he looked up at his face and what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. And they were such big bright tears compared to Diggory's own that for a moment he felt like the lion must be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. And so the lion said, My son, my son, I know that grief is great. And only you and I in this land know that yet. So then, let us be good to one another. What we learn from Gethsemane is that when grief is great in our lives, rather than try to explain it, rather than try to ignore it, rather than try to just dismiss it, what we need to do is we need to sit, and we need to watch, and we need to be good to one another. I'd like to pray. Jesus prayed. Let's pray together right now. Our God and our Father, come crying out to you this morning as your people, recognizing that we live in a land where there is so much grief, so much sorrow, so much heartache and loss. And sometimes, Father, it feels almost unbearable that we don't even know what to say or what to even do about it. Yet this morning, Father, we're thankful to have considered your son and his anguish in Gethsemane. And what we come to recognize, Father, is that our grief is not without hope. And we know that because of what you did in raising him from the dead. 
Father, help us in light of that fact to place our trust in you and to cling to that hope so tightly, even when the darkness of the garden is all around us. Father, we ask a blessing especially upon those of, of this family of believers who might be hurting, maybe even hurting in ways that the rest of us don't even begin to fathom and to understand. What we ask and what we petition is that our great high priest, who we know sympathizes and who understands our weaknesses, we pray that he would comfort and that he would strengthen as only he can. Father, we pray that in some small way we might as well be used as instruments to help them and to help others around us, that we might be um, utensils for your grace and for your mercy to be lavished upon them. Father, we praise you for your immeasurable love and for your care in our lives. And we ask all of these things through the name of our Savior and your Son, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus the Christ. Amen. What we observed in the garden, in many ways, is just a small little window into the great love that the Lord has for each and every one of us. That would be more fulfilled when he would go to the cross and would lay down his life so that we might have life. And if there's someone here this morning who has yet to act upon that wonderful truth that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, if you have yet to repent and turn away from sin, a life of, of selfishness and foolishness that leads nowhere good, if you would this morning make the decision to be baptized into Christ, your sins can be washed away. God will place you into his family. That will then create for you a wonderful system of people who will surround themselves and encourage you and help you in good times and in bad times as well. But that as well then enables you to be a source of, of help and comfort to others in their distress. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that's one of the blessings of being a Christian, is that God comforts us in our affliction so that we can provide comfort for others. If you're not a Christian this morning, you have every reason in the world to become one. And there is no good reason not to be a Christian. And if we can help you in taking those steps today, or brother or sister, if we can help you to repent of sin, to put that out of your life, to be more faithful to the Lord, we stand ready to encourage you, to pray with you. It may just be this morning, you're just dealing with tough stuff in your life. And it's not a sin issue. You, you, you just need some people to lean upon. And this is a wonderful opportunity to say that in a, in a public way, to just get a whole bunch of people all at once to know what's going on with you so that we can be a source of help to you. We're ready to help you in whatever way that we can as well. Whatever your need may be, we're inviting you to come as we sing this song together. Tell us what we can do to help you. Do that while we stand and while we sing.